Hello and welcome to um, the Rethink Energy podcast based around our issue on the 3rd of June. Um, my name is Peter White. I have with me our analysts, Andres Wontanar and Simon Thompson. Um, no Harry this week. He's taking a bit of a, uh, a break for a couple of days. So we'll talk over any of the stories which he um, contributed. And Peter, this, this week's lead story was about Mercedes-Benz investing $105 million in a green steel startup called H2GS. So what was this all about? OK, well, it's a, it's a Harry story. And, and this is work that is, is coming out of his steel report, which um, where he's really picked up a, a, an understanding of how the steel industry is not going to wait. It's not going to wait to be bullied or carbon taxed out of existence or have market share taken away from it. Everybody in the steel industry is starting to look at having a roadmap. So consequently, many of the car companies who who often their products are 50% made of steel uh, are starting to build their own roadmaps of when they will have to have carbon-free or emission-free steel. Obviously, you have carbon in steel. So we saw Volvo doing this and laying out a, a roadmap for this a couple of weeks ago. And Mercedes-Benz has, um, has followed up and it, it's going to start putting fossil-free steel into its production lines from 2025. I mean, I, I think we can expect all the car companies to be conscious that consumers are going to, they're playing a game of who can be the most responsible in the sense of global warming and uh, emissions and climate change and and because we we know that about any given population about 70 percent of them care passionately about climate change that does directly affect sales i think mercedes-benz is wise to uh, look at this and to come out with a roadmap i think a lot of other companies apart from volvo who's already done it will follow interestingly it's a signal to the steel companies who, who mostly are, are looking at a, a four or five year horizon of when they can have a, almost a separate product line of, of emission free steel. It's a signal to them to say, yes, you will have a market. Yes, we, we may even pay a premium for emission free steel. And yes, we're going to insist upon it. And so there's pressure there politically upon them to make sure that steel makers um, go through with their plans. But I mean, we know that a lot of plans are fairly advanced in this market and Harry's built up a real uh, base of knowledge in it. I mean, one of the interesting uh, things is the the um, differentiation between the steel manufacturers in their roadmaps, in timing, and also the process that they plan to go through. For instance, uh, a seller Mittor uh, and a, a slightly different strategy that they have. About carbon capture. Yeah, rather, rather than um, using hydrogen. Mm. I think um, I mean, the the problem with carbon capture is every time we mention it in in the narrowest sense of of coming out of a coal or or a gas turbine, we're we're limiting it to capturing carbon out of generalised exhaust emissions. And there are many processes, particularly, for instance, cement, where what you have coming out of of the transaction is, is a chemically produced stream of pure CO2. So it's not difficult to capture it, and it, that will happen. And so there are parts of the carbon capture marketplace that will happen. Unfortunately, 
using fossil fuels in steel manufacture and then capturing the uh, outputs, that's not going to happen and it's not going to be economically viable. So anyone suggesting that is probably going to suffer in market share as they go forwards. So so even though it's technically feasible, it's, it's still going to be too pricey compared to hydrogen? The whole energy market works on a least cost basis. So the, the reason that carbon taxes carbon taxation and all forms of carbon taxation, including border taxes, works is because it changes your least cost formula. Everybody, everything in energy is about least cost. So as soon as it's not, so something being technically feasible, if you throw enough money at it, is of no use to man or beast. It really has to be and keeps the cost contained. And as carbon taxation comes in, um, taking the carbon out has to happen now. And we've had we've had carbon capture in many places proved to be feasible, but not economically feasible. And that's it's the only thing that counts. So, uh, and Therese, um, I'm uh, about Vietnam. I I always mis misunderstand. I always underestimate the the population size of Vietnam. It's 97 million. And you're saying that this week. Uh, Vietnam is adding or has got plans to add an extra eight gigawatts of renewables. Well, I think that's not the plans. I think that's the pipeline. The um, pipeline, sorry. For this year, just for this year. And then it, it'll it'll cool down again. So what, what's happened in Vietnam for context is they brought in a very heavy, a quite heavy feed-in tariff in 2017 for solar and another one in 2018 for wind. Uh, the solar one ended at the start of this year and the wind one is going to end in October. So they had a really sudden boom that surprised them and then they dialed down the incentives because it was actually scaling past what their grid could really cope with. And I think they'll have seven or nine percent curtailment this year, maybe even a bit more once they um, once they build another five point four gigawatts of wind in one year. Although you know the transmission grid is going to be expanded too, it just takes a little bit longer to build transmission lines than it does to build renewables plants. And like you were saying, it is it's a, Vietnam is a is a country we're going to hear more about because it's got 97 million people and it's currently on the GDP per capita of India. I always say that when I write about them, but they're more centralized, probably, you know, less corrupt, smaller, more coastal. So they'll go from sort of the Southeast Asian level that they're on currently more towards a, an East Asian level of like China. They're industrializing quite rapidly, like their GDP growth is expected to be six percent. But their power demand is going to be growing at eight percent. So, okay. and the, are these because of the, it's a planned economy like China? Is it? Is that? Absolutely. I haven't, I haven't looked into the uh, into the into how democratic they are, if if at all. But they do have five year plans, yes. So they and it, it's quite they really had a sort of classic central planning moment of of really overshooting what they wanted to do. Which is not bad if, if you want to see renewable energy. I just it, it's going to be Can an you interesting cast your, case. Your, your mind back, Andrews, hmm. to about a year ago. I mean, how much, how many gigawatts of coal plants were on the books a couple of years ago that were meant to come through? Well, I know that at one point they slashed their coal pipeline of thirty-seven gigawatts to about eighteen or something. Yeah. And they also cancelled the four gigawatt nuclear plant because it's going to be too expensive. And they don't have much room to build new 
hydropower and they only have nine gigawatts of natural gas generation and i don't think they're even building that much more it's interesting i mean they, they're not they don't have access to much uh, natural gas themselves hmm. as china i mean china only provides half the gas that it uses it has to import the other half hmm. um it's just geologically where it sits on the planet it's um it's uh, difficult to get to i mean we know china is starting to uh, look at fracked gas as it goes forward because it wants to continue to supply um, at least half preferably more of its gas supply for, for for energy security reasons and i think that that will be modeled will be copied by uh, uh, vietnam if it can and and it's all a matter of finance though and what's been really interesting is the way so many of these coal plants that got cancelled were financed by japanese and korean interests not Chinese interests, and they they all got strangled uh, uh, back at base and said, no, don't support this, don't support it here and don't support it in Vietnam. And that's why we've seen that drop. And I bet you that three gigawatt of coal plants doesn't get finally delivered, uh, either on time or if, if at all, um, because it's just been falling and falling and falling in popularity. Hmm. Yeah, it is quite unpopular. Although I think I think that's three gigawatts for this year. So longer term coal plants, I think, like you say, will just end up dying. But I think this this lot will probably limp across the finish line. Yeah, well, they might they might limp this year and next year and the year after across the finish line and, yeah. and then sort of dry up completely. Yeah, I mean, whereas the three gigawatts of solar uh, will probably be smashed. Even the I mean, I, I know it was stimulated by a feeding tariff. And I know they haven't reintroduced the feeding tariff, and they're supposed to be replacing that with an auction system. But that that'll, that'll probably come next year, and then and then that'll probably reaccelerate the solar. I mean, you're you're right. Yes, if if you've got solar in all the wrong places, and the, and the transmission in all the wrong places, and you don't have a way of balancing the solar with um, battery or or, um, or hydro you're going to end up with too much solar and, and a lot of it getting wasted. So feeling tariffs is not the way to go. Uh, and also location, you've got, you've got to do it location-specific installations. But And that's why that will move to an auction system. Now, I've heard of long-term water shortages in Australia, South Africa, Southern California, but I must admit I haven't come across the, uh, the shortage, the drought in Brazil, in Southern and Central Brazil, which apparently is the worst in a hundred years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in fact, it's, since records began 115 years ago, I think was one account of it, and it's we, we've been talking about them having a 10-year drought. And then people say, yeah, now it's the worst drought in 20 years. And you go, well, of course it is. It's been, it's, you've had a drought for 10 years. And, that, and then they say, well, that's worse than it was for 100 years. And you, you think, actually, since records began. So actually, it's just their worst drought ever. And, and then you think, oh, maybe it's not really a drought. Maybe this is a change in the way water moves around. The uh, And there's plenty of um, papers on Amazon rainforests, and I did glance at a few when I wrote this. Um, and the the size of the trees, you just can't um, bring them to mind. I mean, they have sort of some canopy space, but it's the height of the trees and yeah. how how much water is flowing up through them. And one 
I mean, one statistic I read was that a large tree in Amazon um, in one day sucks up about a thousand litres of water, which is is finally lost. It moves all the way from its roots, taking uh, sort of materials that the, the plant needs to grow, and then it it it, um, it is lost from um, from its leaves. And they talk about it being a flying river, which is why it's a rainforest, because it can turn into rain at any point. But um, you've got all this water in the air, almost a haze or a cloud coming off the trees and for thousands of miles. If you interfere with that process in any way, shape or form, you interfere with the rain, um, the rain that's going to fall, not just in Brazil, but in all the surrounding countries. And I think, you know, you... I mean, when we talk about climate change, one of the worst issues is drought, because drought stops you from growing food mm-hmm. and it leads to people migrating. Mm-hmm. And that leads to friction and potentially wars. And that leads to even worse food problems, starvation and, and disease uh, as well with the population on the move. We see this all over the planet. And of course, the moment you hear drought, Brazil's getting up to 200 million people. It's, it's just man-made. I mean, that's it's so clearly man-made. I mean, if you want to fix it, you know, stop burning the forest, stop it dead, stop it in its tracks, uh, make it illegal, make it make it uh, punishable. If you want to stop it affecting your electricity generation, there's a very simple solution. You allow people to put floating solar on all the hydro that they've built over the years. 62% of Brazil's uh, electricity comes from hydro, mm. and you and you um, that floating solar is used for most of the energy. I mean, the thing the thing you get is when when it's used for irrigation and for drinking and for hydroelectricity, the lowest common denominator is if people are are dying of thirst, you have to let the water flow, and you can't block all the dams, regardless of what you want to do with electricity. You're, you're, you have no control over it. And also, if, if all the crops die, you know, again, you have no control over it. So there's a tendency to let the, them flow at a particular level and you get what electricity you can. So there is this varying level each year in Brazil. And you can only guess at it, uh, of how much electricity you get from hydro. And it, if it starts to go down, if that goes down 20%, what, what, what is this government going to do? It's probably going to clear more forest. That's what that's his answer to everything. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it, yeah. it's it's what it really needs to do is stick a load of um, um, solar panels on the ones that it can mm. afford to hold the water in, and um, use that as to to replace its um, shortfall in uh, hydro, um, and that and that's the cheapest way. Mm. And you you could you could fund it for zero. All you've got to do is invite uh, foreign corporations in and buy the electricity from them at a pre-agreed price. But that's the last thing this um, that Bolsonaro is going to do. Well, his comment on this, like you say in the article, is that Brazil got unlucky. It's no vision at all. It's difficult. I mean, imagine being in charge of any of these sort of slightly third world nations and you decide that you have had everything taken away from your country for 50 years by rich Americans who come and plunder. You know, both Mexico and Brazil can complain of that. But they to deny you know, accepting any help from outside, it's just a matter of making better decisions about who you accept help from. China's in the wings waiting, offering better deals. <laughs>
hoping to gain more influence in Latin America. So does Bolsonaro actually do that, that kind of Mexican thing of not liking foreign investment and foreign involvement? Yeah, if you go visit Brazil, it's not a matter of what Bolsonaro thinks, Brazilians think it. The first thing they say, say in a brusque and aggressive tone, are you American? You say no, they go, oh, oh, and then suddenly they're friendly. Yeah, you know, I mean, they they are acutely aware of how American corporations sort of fiddle with the government of the country, fiddle with their natural resources, take them away for less than their worth, and give back very little. I mean, this happens all over the world. And it's not just the Americans. Let's face it, it's the English Empire, the French Empire, and the Dutch Empire as much as 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 the Americans. But it's um it's 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 a natural result of of anything close to empire. Countries that want to get away from it look for different allies um, and look for their own kind of export potential to neighbours and look to be in control of it themselves. I mean, you know, if if all of Latin America could come together as as one block and cooperate, and they often do over some things, you know, like telecommunications and and, uh, and TV programming and you know a few other things, that they they could. Um, they could be a, a real force. I mean, you think there's about 500 million, a bit less, um, people uh, in Latin America, and if you throw in Central America as well, uh, you, you've got, and they, they speak two languages, and, and and they do trade aggressively with each other, but more with America, uh, and, and more from a position of disadvantage. And I just wanted to mention... Um, about NREL, because uh, we haven't really, it, I was quite shocked when I saw this NREL um, paper about um, um, energy storage in the US. Yeah, energy storage in the US going to five times as much, you know, you know to say it, it could reach anywhere between 125 gigawatts and 680 gigawatts by 2050 is a vast understatement. A gigawatt is how much output it can give out at, at a moment in time. They've classified this into multiple layers of output, which is two hours, four hours, six hours, eight hours, 10 hours and 12 hours. And um, and they are almost saying that different technologies are required. I mean, I certainly have spoken to a lot of lithium ion people and they're saying, now give us give us a, a year or two to build a few more plants and we can we can install enough for a 10 hour resource from lithium ion and a lot of this will be um, uh, provided by lithium ion and NREL of all people should know how much lithium ion has been installed on the grid already but what they they said clearly the pumped hydro constitutes all of the storage on the grid which isn't true well it's a tiny amount they say that a tiny amount is lithium ion but the vast majority is pumped hydro yeah, uh, so I mean, it's 1.1 gigawatts when we picked it up at the end of 2019. And we figured they did about another 1.5, so about 2.6 at the end of 2020. And then that's going to go increase by a factor of two or three this year. Now, so the pandemic you think, got in the way of that. But okay, okay. even so, some of those, most of those were not slowed down. Now, they're all four hour or one hour storage in some cases because we count home storage. But it's growing significantly by the end of this year it'll be up at about 13 14 percent of that pumped hydro and within five years it will be beyond the pumped hydro well beyond 
um, much faster reaction time, much closer to to the um, to the, the centres of uh, population, much easier to use to balance the grid, uh, as well as supply um, uh, PICA um, services. So I, I kind of thought, uh, being a bit naive, talking about numbers that are so low, but, and this is the important point, about a third of American utilities have their heads in the sand over storage, and they don't like it because it's expensive, and they won't do, even do experiments in it. But it, the price is coming down so dramatically, it's almost halved in a year, um, about 80% drop in, in something like a year to buy a grid storage um, system. Uh, whether you look at CapEx or you look at LCOS, they, they've both come down dramatically. And it's and the main ingredient that comes down is the, is the lithium ion batteries themselves. So that, those prices are, um, are, are heading to, to sub $100 per megawatt hour. Uh, for um, LCOS and then heading south after that. Uh, pretty soon you, you'll find that solar gets installed with battery automatically. It's an extra cost and it, it stops solar being quite so cheap, but then you can use the energy at any time of the day or night. And the marketplace is doing that. And it's mostly doing four hour battery systems at the moment. And, and they're ready to jump to six or eight, but there are very few utilities out there with a request for six or eight and and everybody uses one of the weird things they say about pumped hydro or any kind of hydro is yeah no one's building any because it's an unattractive capex proposition that involves a lot of money and a lot of uncertainty and the permitting issues but no one's switching any of it off either because it's it is a lovely resource to have if it's if it's something that you control as a utility so uh, i just on that basis, controlling uh, intermittency is it's it's fundamental, and I, I just don't see. Uh, but the fact that they're doing this and that they're making a series of papers over the coming year about this will give utilities confidence that um, NREL says yes, this is fine, this is okay, you can do this. Um, I, I'm sure they they will bring in. Um, some discussion of other types of storage other than um, lithium ion. But you take a technology that, that knocks about 80% off its LCOS in a year, you're not going to, if, if you can compete with it now, two years from now, you won't be able to. Yeah, I think we track something like $50 billion being thrown into gear factories all over the world in building batteries. If, if, if you throw that kind of money at it, the speed at which you learn how to do things more cheaply goes up and up and up. And it brings down the price. And we're compressing 20 years of growth because of electric vehicles, because they're taking off, because everyone's made a commitment to them. And as a result, I, I just can't see anything standing up against lithium um, in the near, in, you know, we, we, we featured a lot of technologies um, and hopefully some of them do get a chance, but um, I don't see this distinction of 12 hour and 10 hour battery being uh, a different, uh, being of a different nature.